0: Well, I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to read together from 1 Timothy, chapter 3. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. There is indeed a lot, once again, in this particular chapter. I decided just to stick to one sermon on 1 Timothy 3 rather than go to two. myself or so, I feel there's uh, still many things here which uh, I could still spend more time on and and spend time preaching about also, but there are also themes in here which do come back chapter 4 and beyond as well. So let's read together for one, Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." The wives, likewise, must be dignified and not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So far the reading from God's word. Before I preach on this, let's sing together from Psalm 134, verse 1, two and three. just read together from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that's indeed what I'd like to preach to you from this afternoon. I did give verse 15, so I should really read that one as well, because the reason why I gave that one isn't because I'll just be focusing on this, Um, it was uh, particularly because uh, this is indeed the theme I find really not just for chapter 3, but really for uh, the the whole letter of Timothy, uh, and that is if... I delay that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, the church needs godly leaders if it is to conduct itself well. And that's the reason as to why Paul gave these specific instructions in this letter to Timothy, dealing with the church of Ephesus, why he gave these specific instructions about what those sorts of leaders ought to be here in chapter 3 uh, when he spoke here about the what we call the elders and the deacons in the church. And so this is going to be also the theme for my sermon this afternoon. The church needs godly leaders if it is to conduct itself well. We'll be looking at two things. First of all, the need for godly leaders, and then secondly, the quality of godly leaders. So first of all, speak more generally and preach more generally about the need for godly leaders focusing on portions of chapter 3 in particular, and then I'll go back to those qualities, those characteristics of the elders and deacons that we find in this chapter. Well, we normally read this Bible chapter at the time for the election of elders and deacons. It's part of our, our rules and regulations that when we have an election of office bearers that we'll read uh, a portion of Scripture which deals with this. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1 would be the ones which are regularly chosen. And it's appropriate because, particularly here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it gives us the qualities, the the characteristics of a a godly office-bearer, of an elder, of a deacon for the church. And so our office-bearers should indeed know this this Bible chapter well and earnestly pray that to God that God will bless them and and help them and so that we as office-bearers, that we may grow in godliness and we may display these characteristics these qualities more and more and also as a congregation it's for us also to pray to the lord for our leaders uh, that they may be godly and also then that we also seek to have godly leaders who reflect these things as our pastor as our minister as, a, as our as our elders and our deacons here in melville church in fact it's better to be short an elder or a deacon or a pastor to choose one who does not match what the Scriptures tell us about the qualities of such an office-bearer. However, when when Paul was writing these things to Timothy and was explaining the kind of man who is to be, indeed, one of the leaders of the church, he wasn't really just thinking about church leadership, but really behind this, he was actually concerned about the church that these leaders would be caring for this is also why after going through these qualifications for elders and deacons overseers and deacons he goes on to say this in verse 14 15 he says i hope to come to you soon but i'm writing these things to you so that if i delay you may know how you ought to conduct or how to behave in the household of god a pillar and a buttress of the truth And so what this teaches us is that, indeed, Paul had every intention, every hope that he would soon be going through Ephesus, or that he would soon at least be seeing Timothy. But he did not know when that might be. He might be delayed. He might not ever be able to come at all. And the situation is too urgent to wait until until Paul might arrive. And there were things that were wrong. And this is also why he's writing this letter. And they needed to be put right and quickly and the reason as to why these things needed to be put right is because as he explains here in verse 15 because of what the church of ephesus really was you see what paul is teaching us here is that the church isn't just some sort of a social club or a group of like-minded people where you you do things and you think things one way at one time and then later on well that can go off and change but rather he says no the church it's it's the household of God. And he also says, it's the church of the living God. And he says, and it's a pillar and a buttress, which means a foundation of the truth. And I'd like you to think about this and, and to really reflect then about what Paul is saying here, what he's teaching Timothy and us about what the church is. First of all, it's, it's God's church. Uh, Paul also had explained this um, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he spoke about it being God's church and also God's household. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, For you are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16, 17, Do you not know that you, and this then, do you not know that you, the church in, in Corinth, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? It's important to see this because in chapter 3 of of 1 Corinthians, Paul calls the church of Corinth collectively God's temple. Chapter 6 is going to speak about individual members. So you as a child of God are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We know that. But in chapter 3, he applies this not to individual members, but he applies this to the church itself. The whole church is the temple or the house of God. And then he also had something very strong to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. He said, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, plural, are that temple. And so this is what he speaks about when it comes to the church in Corinth. Now when he writes to Timothy, he's speaking similar sorts of language in chapter 3 with respect to the church of Ephesus. And this is something we need to recognize also here in Melville Church. You see, we need to have what what I'd like to call then, we need to have a a, a high view of this church. Also our local church here in Melville. We need to recognize ourselves as as God's people, that that we are His, His household, His house. We need to see Melville Church then also as the church of the living God, as chapter 3, verse 15 of 1 Timothy says. We belong to him not just as individuals, but we belong to him collectively. And and God isn't just concerned about us as individuals. He's he's concerned about us as, as his church. Now, the Apostle Paul had also made this very clear in Acts chapter 20, with respect to this exact church of Ephesus, which Timothy was the pastor of. In Acts 20, when he met with the, the leaders, the elders of, of Ephesus, he spoke to them and he said to them, and he, and he described the church, and the church as, as the one which had been purchased by the blood of Christ, and be in his possession, therefore. And so this is something we need to recognize, and that, that when we speak about the church, we need to see ourselves as the household of God. And that as a church... We are precious in God's eyes. And the Apostle Paul goes on because indeed in 1 Timothy, what he's really wrestling with and, 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 and uh, speaking against and writing against is the false teaching and those who are, who are pulling the church and leading the church into very godless directions. And so he speaks about the church and he describes it as the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And so what he's teaching us here then is that the church is indeed the place where the truth, just the truth of the gospel, needs to be preached, it needs to be taught, and it needs to be defended. It needs to be preserved. And as the church living God, as his house then, we then as are, a, are to be a, a gospel church, a community that is shaped and governed by the gospel, and we must be a church then, that lives out our identity as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's then how we are to conduct ourselves. We are the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar, the buttress of the truth. And that's why we're both to preserve and proclaim what verse 16 calls the mystery of godliness. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 3 describes this as the teaching that accords with godliness. Godliness. It was both necessary and urgent that Paul should address these things and instruct Timothy to act by by seeing that godly elders and deacons be appointed because the church of Ephesus was in danger of turning its back on that godliness and turning its back on the gospel and being led astray then by false teachers. In fact, in contrast to the qualities and the characteristics for elders and deacons that we read about in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Uh, Paul had already warned in Acts 20 that savage wolves, men who spoke perverse things, who would draw people away from themselves, that they would be coming to attack that church of Ephesus. And now Paul is seeing that what he had warned, that, that this is true. And these people, Paul warned, they wouldn't just come from outside, but they'd also come from within the congregation. And some of these would be considered leaders, perhaps even elders and deacons. But they would be pushing the gospel to the side. To the point that Ephesus would be in danger of no longer being a gospel community. Let alone a, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And these men and perhaps also some women. They taught them a false doctrine. And we'd already gone through this a little bit in chapter 1. Uh, uh, teachings which, where there were rules. Uh, chapter 4 speaks about this as well. Where, where they were forbidding people to marry. They were forbidding people to eat certain foods. They were causing quarrels and disputes about matters that didn't apply to the gospel. It had to do with with genealogies and all sorts of made-up things as well. And in the meantime, then, they also lost their missionary vision, their desire to have the gospel not only preached for themselves, but that all people everywhere might hear that gospel and might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul's concern is, well, if this is going to continue and this church in Ephesus is going to keep on going this way, then the gospel itself will be lost, the truth will be denied, and the church would cease to be the house of God. And see, this is why Paul's writing this letter to Timothy. He's writing this so that the church of Ephesus might be brought back to the truth of the gospel. And so the church of Ephesus might also be brought back to the message of salvation. But understand that Paul is then concerned about two things here. He's concerned about the church as, as a whole, as a un- unity, as, as a body, as the household of God. But he's also concerned about individuals, about each one of the members individually, and certainly also about those who were to lead the church as well. And Paul's not only concerned about you know, elders and deacons in general, but he's also concerned very much about about Timothy himself. Uh, We've already had this in in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Then he goes on and speaks about others who rejected these things. But no, Timothy, you need to hold on to this faith and this good conscience. Uh, Chapter 4, if I was to flip across to there, verse uh, 6 and 7. If you, Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers and and teach these things, it says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And then also in chapter 4, verse verse 12. uh, Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your your progress. And 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So what this is teaching us here, then it's clear that both what Timothy is to teach, but then also how Timothy himself is to live... These are both of the highest importance to the Apostle Paul as he's writing this letter to Timothy. What he's commanding Timothy as really the pastor of the church and what he wants then of the elders and the deacons of this church are to be that they're going to live out that gospel and it's going to be seen then and observed in the way in which they live their lives in their godliness and also in their their determination to serve the Lord Uprightly and in everything. And it's important for Timothy and for his own salvation. And it's important also, as Paul says, it's important for the whole church. How Timothy's going to live will bear and show fruit in the congregation. And the same applies to the elders and the deacons in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul had told Timothy what he'd done, what had to be done in order for the church of Ephesus to once more live out of the true gospel of salvation. And he speaks more generally about men, letting go of their anger, letting go of the quarreling and instead praying to God. He speaks about the women who were to dress and live in all modestly and godliness and submission. He spoke there also about the need to pray for everybody, including kings and others, so that all people may come to a knowledge of the truth. And now he goes on to chapter 3 to say, well, for these things all to happen, we're also the need to see to it that we're going to have godly leaders. We're going to have brothers who are going to be above reproach. who are going to hold to the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. And yes, they're going to do this not just for themselves, but for the sake of the church, the household of God. And if, Timothy and the church of Ephesus had to be aware of this in Paul's day, this is also something that we need to hear and that we need to recognize in our day here in Melville Church as well. We need to understand then who we are as a church community and what it means then for us to live as the household of God. This is something which, which I as a pastor, which our elders, which are deacons, but indeed all of us have to take very seriously. Also when it comes to, to church. We live in a, in, in a, in a time in, in, which, in, in which performance means a lot. We live in a time in which we're trying to, to improve, to change, to, to modify, to, uh, to correct, and, and to seek results on things. And it's not surprising if we want to see some of that in church as well. Now it's not all wrong things. But, but there are things which, which no doubt we'd like to see where as Melville Church that we would be more connected. Uh, we would like to see more people involved. Uh, we would like to be, to be more missional, uh, missions focused and, and, and seeing that, that the word goes out. Uh, perhaps in some ways we want to be more contemporary and certainly want to be able to, to speak to the issues of the day And to be relevant. We want to be more loving. In and of themselves, all of these things are right. and They're good. And we can no doubt find one or more Bible verses in which we can say, yeah, these all are things which we need here in church. But if we were just to think about these things on their own, we're going to go down the road of of competence. That this is something which becomes the the primary thing. But if we go back, Back to what it teaches us in 1 Timothy. We see that 1 Timothy doesn't say that competence doesn't matter. In fact, all those things which I mentioned really do matter. But he doesn't start there. But he starts really instead, (coughs) not so much with competence, but with character. And that's important. For us as a church, and also for us as individual members... And also for our leaders as well. (coughs) In the church, whatever competence a church leader might have, it needs to come out of his godly character. And what it means, in other words, is it's not what you do that makes you who you are. But who you are needs to be the foundation of what you do. In other words, or just to try to say it in other ways, just so that we get this. We're not going to focus on who's going to be the one who's going to be the most charismatic. Or who's going to be the one who's going to be, uh, have the best ideas. Or who's going to be the one who's the most lovable. Or who's going to be the one who's, who's the best uh, person as far as uh, uh, making the best use of his time and all these things. These things are all helpful. But our focus for our leaders and then ultimately our focus for our church must be we need to see to it that we're going to seek to be, to be godly. Godly in the way that God would have us be. And that 1 Timothy would teach us. And indeed, for our church to be like that, it's not just that we want to have that as individuals, but as our church needs to be that, we also need to see to it that our leaders are going to lead us in that way. And you see, this is the context then that Timothy is being instructed on who is to be the elders and the deacons in his church. That brings me then to my second point, and that is the qualities of godly leaders. Just going back now to chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. In other words, also then, to aspire to this or to desire this is not in, in and of itself a bad thing. And also for our men to, to see this and to recognize that, yes, in my leadership and also my family and so forth, to, to aspire to also leadership within the church is indeed appropriate. And to train myself and to grow in these ways is also appropriate. And indeed, in and of itself, it's a noble task. Now, in our ESV... English Standard Version. It says, if anyone aspires to the office of of overseer, he desires a noble task. You'll have other Bible translations, I think, in particularly here, of, say, the King James Version, the New King James Version. And that uses not the word overseer, but the word bishop. Now, one of the challenges that we have is that different church traditions call their leaders by different names. And another challenge is, is that we don't always use that name in the same way. And so when the the Bible here spoke about those people as being bishops, it spent about it did really mean those who were overseers. Overseer is really the literal translation of this word. But when the word bishop, for example, is used by churches such as the Roman Catholic or the Anglican tradition, and this speaks about a leader who is normally of a higher ranking than other leaders. We don't have that in our Reformed tradition, but they do. And so a bishop then is someone who, who oversees other ministers or other members of the clergy. And this is a bit of a hierarchical sort of a thing. But one Timothy three doesn't isn't speaking about these people at all. It's speaking about church leaders, and these church leaders are the overseers in the local church. And for that reason, we would also see then that overseers need an appropriate way to translate this. Not only that, the way in which we would see this is that we would see this is that these overseers are really those whom we would call elders. And there's another reason for that, and that is in Titus chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul, he speaks about overseers and then elders in pretty much the same breath. breath. So in in Titus chapter 1 verse 5, he speaks about elders, and in chapter verse 7, he speaks about overseers. So the overseers in chapter 3 here are, are the elders. Similarly, a deacon. So the elder is the one who is responsible to oversee the doctrine, the godliness of the congregation, is the guardian, the watchman, the protector of the church. But then deacon. The word deacon, too, is used differently in different churches. Uh, Some would actually use the word deacon to describe those whom we would call ordained ministers. Others don't see the deacon as being an office that carries any authority at all. Now, in our Reformed tradition, uh, deacons are more closely connected to elders They make up the council of the church. And biblical reasons for that would include how the elders and deacons are explained together in chapter 3 and other portions of Scripture, such as Philippians 1 verse 1, which also links elders and deacons together as well. We see that their task is different. And yet at the same time, there is a connection in that together, they are to care for the church in different ways. In Melville Church, because we are a smaller church, relatively speaking, our elders and deacons actually work very closely together. A larger churches would have the elders more separate, the elders more separate to so the deacons. But the deacon's task, and the, the deacon itself, is really this simply means a servant and work of service. And so deacons mainly they assist the congregation in tangible ways. And uh, then they were to visit, they're to help, they're to encourage where there's need, and urge the church members also to, to give assistance where that's necessary. And they also are the ones who would collect and distribute gifts also where there is need. And as such, both the elders and the deacons are there to manage, and to guide, and to assist, and to oversee the congregation, so that we might all, as it says in, in verse 15, so that we might all conduct ourselves well in the household of God, in the church of the living God. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3 then goes through and gives certain qualifications or characteristics of, for these overseers, these elders, and for these deacons. There's a bit of difference between the elders and deacons, but there's a lot of overlap. And, and so rather than go through the elders first and deacons second, uh, in this sermon, I just wish to just focus on, on these characteristics in a more general way. And as you go through those characteristics of elders and deacons, uh, you'll see that, that you can really split them up into three, three main categories. And what we learn here is that the elders and deacons then must be godly in their families Sorry, they must be godly in their persons, as in individuals. They must be godly in their families. And they must be godly in their, in their doctrine and in their ministry. Let me go through those three things. So first then, both the elders and the deacons, must be godly in their persons. That means they need to be men of spiritual integrity. Elders are to be above reproach. Deacons are to be dignified. This doesn't mean that elders and deacons, or pastors, that we're without sin, or in that sense that we've reached a higher plane of holiness than anybody else. Uh, we recognize, and, and certainly as office bearers, we are fully aware also of our weaknesses, of our failings, and this is also why. And we also are aware that that the, that, that the devil will also attack us as leaders. And this is also the reason why we as leaders, but also we pray, ask that you too, will, will pray to God for us, even as we pray. And so that we may, we may grow in that godliness, and that we may also be faithful to God, and that we might not fall, that we might not stumble, but that we might be godly in all things. But when, when the scriptures do speak here about that spiritual integrity, it is also something which we need to take very seriously. And when the Bible also speaks here about them being above reproach uh, in verse 2, this would really mean that, that our elders and deacons and, and me as pastors, we need to have a good reputation. And we need to be seen to be those who would consistently live out our faith in, in such a way that, that a charge can't be sustained against us, a, a charge that would, would disbar us from the ministry. Uh, to be above reproach, then it's to, to live both in doctrine and life in a manner that's consistent with the gospel. And so we're called to do this and to humbly do this and also to seek to do this more and more. Elders and deacons are to be dignified in speech and conduct, living as those who fear God. And then 1 Timothy 3 goes on to give some examples of what it means to be above reproach. Uh, it's being sober-minded, being respectable, verse 2. Uh, also with respect to alcohol, yes, uh, you can drink a glass of wine. Um, chapter 5, verse 23, Timothy's going to be told to drink a bit of wine for his stomach's sake, but certainly not to be a drunkard or to be addicted to much wine. Being men of spiritual integrity, elders are to be gentle, not quarrelsome. They must speak well in a manner that reflects the beauty of the gospel and to win their neighbor for Christ rather than driving them away through a quarrelsome spirit. In the same way, you're not to be double-tongued, uh, to say one thing and, and, and do another. But we are to be those who speak well and to be honest. Also, elders and deacons both have to show integrity, certainly also when it comes to money and material wealth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 and 8 teach that you're not to be greedy for money, but to be content with what the Lord has given us. And it's not only the men... And not only the elders and the deacons are to be godly and show the spiritual integrity, but also the women. And you have this in, in verse 11. 1 Timothy 3, verse, verse 11. It speaks here about the deacons. It says, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this, this, there's often a question which is being raised, and, and, and uh, it's a, a, a genuine question to wrestle with. Uh, who are these, these, these wives? Other translations would simply have the women here. Are these the wives of the deacons? Or are these actually other women in the congregation who are are there to serve? Now, there are differences of of understanding about this. Our ESV translation has indeed uh, made it clear that they believe this to be the wives of the deacons. And in the context that, for myself also, that that does make the most sense. Certainly, what we can see here is that male and female even as they work together in ministry, are to live a life that is consistent with the gospel. And later on in chapter 5, uh, Paul will give further instructions about certain women in their ministry in the church when he speaks particularly about, about the widows. So that's the first thing there, which is probably the, the biggest uh, part of these explanations of the, the qualities here, and that has to do with the, the personal integrity of the elder or of the deacon. Just going on then to the second place here. And that is that elders and deacons are to be godly in their families. And so there are things here about them. There has to be the husband of one wife, uh, ruling over your own house well, have your children in submission and reverence. Uh, verse 5 points out, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will we care for God's church? And so the Apostle Paul is saying here, you can learn a lot from a person if you just observe him in his own home. So what we learn here also is that marriage is a holy institution ordained by God and the office bearer must be faithful, faithful to his wife and live out of his faith with respect to his marriage. Elders and deacons, indeed all of us, must teach our families and we need to live out of the gospel and be that that gospel-focused family that loves God, that loves his church, that grows in the true faith also. And if we consist, observe uh, consistent rebellion, or wild, drunken, or disobedient behavior, or general godlessness in a home, this should be a, a reason to refrain from appointing someone to the office of elder or deacon. Now, in this context, we, we shouldn't just look to a single event or to a single child. But what we're concerned about here is the pattern, to see the way a brother raises his family, And also those and how he cares and and manages over those in his household, in his house. It's not as though we can only find a a man who has a perfect marriage and a perfect family. Or has never had any issues with with his children. In fact, you also would realize and know that very often those elders or those deacons who have gone through such challenges. God has also taught them much and can assist you also when you are going through those challenges as well. But what we are seeking to see here is that when these things uh, occur, how are they managed? Is there faithfulness and godliness in the household of the one appointed to be the elder or deacon? And is he seeking to govern his family and care for them in the fear of the Lord in a manner that is pleasing to him? And then my third place then elders and deacons are to be godly with respect to their doctrine, with respect to the ministry. The elders to be hospitable. Have his home, have his life open to others. He should have an an eye to the visitor, whether it's a fellow Christian or whether it's not. And so that people will feel comfortable in speaking to him. And they could also ask questions, and receive help. It also says he the elder has to be able to teach. Now we do distinguish, and there's reasons for that, 1 Timothy 5, 17. There's reasons why we distinguish between the teaching elder, whom we call a minister... And the ruling elder, which are the other elders of our church. is the way we have this now Reformed church. And as your minister, I'll be teaching and preaching more than an elder does. And we're not saying here that every elder has to be able to teach in the same way. And to, and to conduct a large classes and so forth. But each elder should be able to sit down with another. And to open the scriptures and to go through them and to teach and instruct in what the Lord has to do. And indeed, this is what they're doing when they meet with you in your home visits too. And deacons are called to love scripture, hold to the mystery of faith, it's verse 9, and take the gospel to the congregation so that no one remains physically or spiritually empty. And so these are are the qualities of the elders and deacons who are to be appointed, so that through them the congregation might conduct ourselves in a right and a godly manner, in God's house. But do you see where the emphasis lies? The emphasis is not so much on who this minister, these elders deacons really is. Sorry, on, the emphasis is not so much on what he does, but the emphasis is on who he is. He is a Christian, a child of God. A child of God who lives for God who serves him, who loves him, and who loves his neighbor as himself. And so to be, to be an elder, it is, verse 1 says, it's a noble task. And those who serve well as deacons are blessed. They obtain for themselves good standing and great confidence in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus, verse 13. And so we learn here, it's a daunting task, but a good one. A blessed one. It's one in which the elders and deacons are to care for the salvation of souls whom the Lord purchased with His own blood. Elders and deacons are called to minister to the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar, the bulwark, the buttress of the truth. We need these men. We need our office bearers. And we need them to be godly. And we need them to match that which we read here in chapter 3 if as a church we're to be the church of the living God and we're to conduct ourselves right in the church that's a high calling and an older deacon would no doubt look at his qualifications think to themselves about how they've been conducting themselves in their lives up until this point, and even how they're carrying out their task as an older deacon now. And then if we think about these things, and think about our own marriages, our own families, and our own understandings of the gospel, our own ability to teach and so forth, then as office bearers, we will very often, more often than not, begin to feel very inadequate for the task. And even as members, then, you may be aspiring to that task of an elder deacon, but you conclude, no, I cannot do that. I'm not that good. I don't have all those abilities. I cannot live like that. You see, the Bible, it does set a high stand for holiness. And this is also which makes us realize how inadequate we are. But then, but then we need to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we need to recognize that, that the Apostle Paul isn't saying this to Timothy to say, and therefore you're going to go through every last person in your church and say, no, we've got nobody left. And we better just shut up shop and go away. But instead, what he does after going through these things and explaining also why it's so necessary to have such elders and deacons, he goes back to the truth ...of the gospel. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so we say, this mystery of godliness that we're speaking about here, this gospel message that we're preaching, proclaiming, it's a mystery. No, not the mystery that you don't understand But it's a mystery that's been revealed. And this is the mystery. And this is the wonder of it all. That we have a Savior. That the Son of God has become a man. That he died. That he rose from the dead. And he's been preached on in the world. And he's been preached to us also. And now he's exalted and is at the right hand of the Father. And so what are we to do then as a church? And what are we to do then as, as office bearers and so forth? We are to look to him, our risen Lord and our exalted Savior. And we are to praise Him. And we are to to grow in Him. And we are to thank Him. We are to ask Him for His Spirit through whom we may now live and have our being. And we look to Him. We are going to grow in Him. And it's in this way that we are going to conduct ourselves in the house of God. We are not going to be doing these things. And we are not going to assume that our office bearers, they, they just somehow just got it all together. And it's all just going to go Great. We're not going to walk around thinking, oh, somehow we become more holy, and more godly than anybody else, and, we, and, and, and therefore we've, we've reached a grade. But even as we seek to grow in this godliness and have those characteristics and those qualities that 1 Timothy chapter 3 speaks of, and really ultimately we're all called in many ways to grow in that such godliness, we do so looking to Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we look to Him and we trust that it is in Jesus that not only are we forgiven, not only are we we declared righteous, but in Him through the power of His Spirit, we are strengthened, we are built up, and we are equipped, and we are given what we need so that we may function as the church, as the household of the living God. And so we must live out of the gospel today even as we look forward to the blessed hope of being in the presence of our God always. Amen.